Good morning again. <laughs> All right. Uh, it's it's great to be able to continue our series uh, as we've been uh, looking at the Sermon on the Mount, um, and it's we've called this series "Living Values" because what we're doing is we're drawing from from Jesus to learn about um, the values that He has for us, and this vision that Jesus gives us in in this sermon which, by the way, is in Matthew chapter 5 to 7, um, so you can read it if you've got a Bible, um, is Jesus' vision of the good life. You know, uh, sometimes we, when we talk about, when we hear the word, the, the phrase, the good life, you probably start thinking about things like security, wealth, status, achievement, levels of happiness, you know, because that's generally what our society thinks of as the good life. But the good life, according to Jesus, is pretty different, and it's a, it's a beautiful vision. And as Christians, it's a vision that we call ourselves, uh, or we are called to, uh, to follow. Jesus' vision of the good life starts with our creator God, no less, revealing himself to us, and the incredible news, as we've just heard David speak about, is that God is for us that God values us deeply and that he's calling us to him. So at the heart of this life that Jesus is trying to show us and tell us about is a living relationship with God through Jesus, a life that's devoted to walking in Jesus' footsteps, a life where God grows our capacity, helps us to be able to be selfless in love, connected to those around us in meaningful ways, deeply devoted to God and to his purposes. This is the good life. This is how to truly live as a human being, says Jesus. So as we come towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount in our series, I think this is the 11th sermon you've heard if you've been here each week, uh, Jesus is concluding, starting to conclude his sermon. And he concludes with three warnings, all right? And today what we're going to do is we're looking at the first one of those warnings. And really, um, they're warnings that help us to know how Jesus wants us to respond to his teaching. Because you could say, all right, thanks for that sermon, Jesus. What am I supposed to do with it? Is, is this just, you know, a nice uh, sort of general piece of writing that that maybe could be any in any health and well-being magazine you know tips on how to live or is it a, a philosophy that we can put on our bookcase alongside a bunch of other ones and you know add it to our bookshelf well Jesus is actually what he's trying to say through these warnings is he's trying to make it explicit really clear that through who he is and through his teaching alone is the only real good life, the only true way to flourish and thrive. So he's saying these words are vital. These words that you've heard, these messages that we've spoken um, to try and explain it to you, this isn't just one among many. This is something to really take on board. So let's have a look at the, um, at the scripture for today, the, the first warning that Jesus gives towards the end of, of his Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Enter through the narrow gate, 
because the gate is wide and the road easy, leading to destruction. And most people are traveling this road. How narrow the gate and how rough the road leading to real life. And how few are finding this way. All right? So let me, uh, let me just take you through that to make it um, clear. So Jesus is talking about two gates and there's two roads that follow those gates. First, there's the wide gate. And the wide gate takes you to the easy road. Sounds pretty attractive until Jesus tells us that it leads nowhere. Or worse than nowhere, it leads to destruction. Yet most people go this way, Jesus says. To me, the wide gate and the easy road is life outside of loyalty to Christ. And it's a life that seems wide and alluring because there's many choices that we have, many moral permissions which tempt us towards a seemingly fuller and broader life. It's, it's kind of, to me, the reason why many people would go down this road. It's, it's like the psychology that the serpent uses way back in that early, that original story of Adam and Eve. Um, what he says when he's trying to get the um, Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit the serpent says, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. So the wide gate that leads to the easy road is the kind of the life where you you say, I know better. I'll be in charge. I don't really need God. In fact, this life looks bigger and broader without God. And so it's the gate of whatever pleases you. And you enter it and you have all these choices. Um, there's, there's the allure of many choices. Um, there's this idea that there's more out there than Jesus. It's also the path of least resistance. So it's an easy path because you can go with the flow. You can just choose whatever you like or whatever other people are choosing. Um, life on the easy road is no longer a matter of praying, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Instead, it's just whatever pleases you. Your values become a matter of whatever you please, your choices, whatever is the flavor of the day. And there are endless options. So follow your own star, they say. Then there's the narrow gate. And it seems funny that Jesus would sort of refer to himself or his, his teaching as narrow when his his sermon so far has been so wide in mercy and love like we've we've been blown away by God's love for us how much um he values us and now he's saying my way is narrow i i believe that it's narrow in the sense that Jesus alone is the gate he's saying you got to go through me so the call to enter the narrow gate is the call to make Jesus our Lord. Jesus is essentially making the same claim that he does in John 14 that we we just heard Leah uh, read so well. Um, In his narrow declaration, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So in both of these scriptures, 
Jesus is making the same clear statement about his position and role in God's redemptive story. He's saying, I'm the only shot that you've got. We like choices, but when it comes to our redemption, Jesus isn't giving us any. What I'm going to do just to, um, I, I always feel like that, that phrase, I am the way, the truth and the life, um, can do with a little bit of explaining. So what, is, what does it really mean that we have to go through Jesus? Um, what I'm going to do is just take each, basically each little bit of that and just give a little bit of explanation. So um, firstly, I am. Why does he say I am the way? It seems funny that he would put himself there because usually a way is is not relating to a person. What Jesus is saying when he says I am the way, he's talking about how, in other words, he's saying access to the good life is not through the wide gate of general human wisdom or experience. You can't study your way into the good life, according to Jesus. You can't strive your way there. You can't earn your way in some way. But what's there is um, God has made himself known to us relationally in Jesus, and it's only when we choose to meet him that we have access to the good life. So he says, I am the way. It's through me. It's through relationship with me. That's the core. That's the heart of the life that I'm leading you into. Just fixing the old collar. (laughs) Uh, Secondly, the way. So see, he says, I am the way. Jesus is leading us on what he calls in Matthew a, a rough path, a challenging path. So the, the way that Jesus is leading us on is an uneasy road. It's a challenging place to be uh, where we live a life of devotion to him, obedience to his teaching. And we've heard, all those, um, we've heard his teachings through, through this series, his teachings against anger, against lust, against uh, divorce, uh, against oaths, against retaliation, hate, greed. And also his, his teachings about how to pray and about loving our enemies. This is the way. This is the way that he's calling us on. It's, it's nice and clear there for you to, to read. He also says, I am the truth. When we say our faith is the true faith, I don't believe that we're being arrogant in saying that. This is a statement of our devotion to Christ. I am devoted to Christ. This is the truth. We're also not necessarily saying that outside of our faith, so people of other faiths or people with no faith, have no truth or no kind of light, that that it's all darkness outside of the Christian faith. Um, There are good things within other beliefs. But what we're saying when we say that Jesus is the truth, that our faith is the true faith, We're saying that our faith in Jesus is the yardstick by which I will measure others, others' um, ideas. For example, as a Christian, if I'm speaking to a Chinese person who follows Confucius, right? Confucius says that you should always do the right thing regardless of the consequences. And I would stand alongside that person and say, I agree. That's true. because Not because I've suddenly become a, 
a, um, like a follower of Confucius myself, but because using Jesus and his teaching as my yardstick, I can agree with that person. So I say our truth, uh, our, um, Je- when Jesus says I am the way, the truth, he's saying um, our faith is the true faith. Lastly, he says the life. So I am the way, the truth, and the life. Ultimately, Jesus leads us to life, to human flourishing, to friendship with God, to forgiveness, to salvation, to fullness and wholeness, to right thinking, right action. This is not because we're better people than others. It's simply because uh, we are devoted to Jesus and we do it in his strength. In our society, as uh, we live in a place now where, in a time where there are many different religions and many different beliefs, all in the same geographic and political space, and we wonder how can we successfully manage and govern a multicultural, multi-faith society, and it's it's causing challenges isn't it and it's causing stresses Um, there's all sorts of different beliefs around and people feel uncomfortable with the teaching that I've just given like I've just explained to you what um, what those two scriptures mean the narrow gate and um, and Jesus saying I'm the way the truth and the life and we we find it hard to follow those um, those truths because we say or it seems a bit harsh, seems a bit intolerant, maybe, and it seems to just not fit with our con- contemporary sort of place. And so there's this assumption that this is um, potentially that to, for me to, to be devoted to Jesus and to say my truth is the true is is the true faith, um, that we somehow are a threat. To social stability. The anxiety heightens, I think, when we realize that all the major religions make these sorts of exclusive claims. So Hindus are often described as the most religiously tolerant um, religion, but even they make, um, like, they, they are exclusive when it comes to the truth claims of their faith. In Islamic moderate countries like Turkey and Indonesia, over 60% of Muslims would say, my faith is, is the true faith only. And in the more conservative Muslim countries, that percentage would be much higher, but I don't have, that, I don't have the actual statistic. Christians hold to their faith exclusively even more. In Africa and China, where Christianity is vibrant and growing rapidly, 87% are religious exclusivists, which means they say, I'm devoted to Jesus, this is the true faith. And that that percentage only falls in Christianity in the Western countries, where it's just below 50%. It seems as though Western society is telling us that what's more palatable is the idea that no single religion has the monopoly on truth. Instead, we're all basically the same. So there's this image that, that's often given where our spiritual journey is like a mountain. 
And although the paths up the mountain may vary, so you know whether you go up the Christian path or the Muslim path or any other path, in the end, they all arrive at the same place. This is um, this is the idea that, which is called religious pluralism. Okay, um, that we all meet at the top of the mountain in our respective spiritual journeys. I just want to say a couple of things about what I reckon is wrong with with that idea. Firstly, ironically, this seems like a wide embrace, and it actually, but it actually leads to its own exclusive truth. So you're trying to sort of have a broader picture, broader stance, but what you do is it ends up being steeped in the same intolerance that it's trying to reject because in the end it's saying we know the truth. The truth is that every religion is, is good or every religion is, um, is, is equal, equally true. So can you see how all you've done is just shifted to a different, um, a different way of seeing things? Secondly, as tempting as it is to take on this conviction that all world religions are roughly equally true, the problem is that if you actually take the time to investigate and to study those religions, you'll find that each one has quite different ends to, to other ones. Like, so they don't all have the same end in mind. And so you can't really say that they're all equally just as good as each other. It's, to me, it, that's, that's a, a statement that, that's formed through ignorance. But most vitally... To me, taking on board religious pluralism severely weakens my Christian faith because we make a decisive step away from devotion to Jesus. We move towards picking and choosing based on our own limited understanding. See, in all times, in all times um, through Christian history, there have been parts of following Jesus that have been kind of, you know, cool and easy and, and everybody loves it. But they've also been, they've, they've always been parts of following Jesus that are unpopular and that are hard to accept. But if we can just disregard the bits we don't like, then we've got to ask ourselves, are we even trusting Jesus or are we trusting our own, our own thinking? Do we know better? Um, whose voice are we wanting to sound as the body of Christ? Are we wanting to speak as Jesus? Or, um, or are, we, are we too concerned? About, are we thinking that we know better? Just to close out this sermon, I, I just want to say three more things about why being, being a person who's thoroughly devoted to Jesus and to his way of life, and to, to make those sorts of claims, even though they're unpopular, I, want to, I just want to give three reasons why that's good for our multicultural society, okay? Because the overwhelming thing is, if you believe that, you're intolerant, you're against multicultural society, you're, you're not a friend to us, blah, blah, blah. And I want to say there's actually um, some really good reasons why that's going to be good, not just for you and for your personal faith, but for the world around us. Firstly, we follow the golden rule. Okay, we, we, David spoke about this last week. Though Christ calls us to make it a clear and firm distinction about our faith, at the same time, 
we're called to reject any distinctions between our treatment of anybody. Okay? So the golden rule, which is a distinct summary of Christian morality, says, in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. So the commands, um, the command to love one's neighbours is universal for us. It applies to friend and foe, to good and evil, to the saved and the unsaved. There are no outsiders when it comes to our love and who it should be shown to. When we show love and care for others, we're not going against God's will, but we're in fact obeying God and imitating God who causes the sun to rise on the good and the evil and who loves those who have made themselves even God's enemies. So to me, if I really think that I can do that on my own, love everybody, I think I'm, I think I'm missing, I think I'm a little bit missing something. But if I depend fully on Jesus, then maybe through his strength, he'll be able to, um, to allow me and us to actually be people of love. So I'm not about to let go of devotion to Jesus, thinking that I, that I have a better way to love. Secondly, our, our Christian faith asks us to let God be judge. All right? So there's nothing in Christ's teaching that demands that Christians should impose our particular religious vision upon all of society. That's not our, that's not our aim. That's, that's never our aim. Christian faith has led Western society to the creation of liberal democracy, like what we have now. Freedom, freedom of choice, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion. How would that have happened if Christian teaching was for us to, um, to, be, uh, to be demanding that everybody follow the Christian faith? So we make a firm distinction between God's judgment, which is not our, our deal, it's not for us to do, and, and the state's justice. We advocate a clear separation between state and church. We insist on respect for religious freedom. In other words, it's not up to us to make judgments that God might want to make. So with absolute devotion to Jesus, we nonetheless regard it as wrong to coerce or to shame or to put down another person who doesn't follow our beliefs. And lastly, we hold on to truth with a firm and enduring grip. I reckon in our society, and particularly among politicians, you could say, they almost consider it essential to hold quite lightly to their views because they, they need to be able to quickly abandon their belief um, if, it's, if it's challenged or if it's sort of no longer popular. Because if you hold on to that, then there goes your career, right? So, um, so we live in a world where the truth is becoming pretty messy. And I actually think that um, for Christians to be not having a loose grip, a looser grip on truth, but actually having a firm grip on the truth about the good life, that we are able to, um, we're able to, I guess, to take, um, we're able to, to actually stand for something. And, and that, that in itself is, is something that we need in our society at the moment.
And that's provided that we don't try to take others' convictions about the good life out of their hands, which would be thoroughly unchristian of us if we ever did that. So um, I hope that that's given you a little bit of clarity and um, really our living value for, for today, if you haven't already picked it up, is be devoted to Christ alone. Choose the narrow gate and walk the rough path that follows um, that follows the gate, trusting that it leads to the truly good life. Be devoted to Jesus alone. That's the only way that we're going to have the capacity to be a picture of Christ to others. We're going to um, move into our time of response. Be interested to um, to see, uh, you know, to to hear your response. Um, but we're not going to do a, a a group response. It'll be um, there'll be music playing, and I just invite you to grab your response card and and have a little bit of a write some of your thoughts down. Today, instead of having a list of questions, what I thought to do as our response is I've just got. Um, I guess this is like a little prayer, but I don't want you just to copy this down on your response card, but I want you to just use it as a base. So um, think a little bit about how is your life devoted to Jesus? Um, how is How can you make it more of a loving response to Jesus? So the, the prayer says here, Lord God, help me to make my life a loving response to Jesus. And there, these are there's some suggestions of things that might um, that might get you thinking. So help me to make my life a, a loving response to Jesus by working for peace and goodness within myself. So that's a task that we can do as a loving response to Jesus by seeking to be a peacemaker and a force of love in daily life. When you think of your daily life, whether you work or um, whoever you meet through the day, how can you be more of a peacemaker and a force of love in, in that space as a loving response to Jesus? By spending time in prayer and Bible reading each day, um, how, how can we even think to be a peacemaker and a force of love if we're not connected to Jesus, if we're not spending time in prayer with him? By living conscientiously and simply, so that I do not deprive others of the means to live, and by actingly, actively resisting evil. Perhaps there's some things in your life that you think, uh, in my, if I want to make my life a loving response to Jesus, maybe I need to kind of get rid of those things or, or move away from those things. And then the last little section just says, God, I trust in your sustaining love, and I believe that just as you have given me the grace and desire to follow you, so you will also give abundant grace for me to fulfill it. All right, so I'm going to leave you now um, and with some music to uh, spend some time in response.